Well, I have a question for you. Have you ever received something or have you ever done something that had a much bigger impact than you expected? Well, one year at Christmas, my children received one of those donation gifts made on their behalf from their grandparents that had a bigger impact than anyone expected. This one happened to provide surgery for children who were born with cleft palates whose families couldn't afford it. And one of my sons, he was so moved by this gift that it took us all by surprise. He thought that this was the most wonderful thing, and this brought him such great joy that he exclaimed this was the best Christmas gift he had ever received. And I took issue with that because only moments beforehand, Andrew and I had given the boys a surprise Nintendo. And it did not receive such a great response as that donation gift did. But he was right. It was the most wonderful gift given that morning. But for us and for the grandparents who gave the donation gift, none of us imagined that it would bring a child such joy, that it would move him so deeply. That gift was worth far more than any of us anticipated. And today we are in the fourth week of our, in series, of our series entitled, Who We Are Becoming, which focuses on our church's vision statement and core values. And today we are looking at the core value of worship. And our value statement on worship says, we are committed to wholehearted and spirit-led worship of our triune God revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And at the story uh, that we're looking at this morning from the Gospel of Mark, it exemplifies that kind of worship. And what we see in this encounter is, just like that Christmas donation had an impact on my son that surpassed all of our expectations, authentic worship is worth more than we know. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be reading from verses 1 to 11. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethlehem, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. 
So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Well, this story, it tells us of three different events. First, it tells us of the chief priests and the teachers of the law scheming to arrest Jesus in order that they might kill him. It tells us of the perfume incident happening at Bethany, and then finally, Judas's betrayal. Now, the Gospel of Mark is unique in how it recounts events compared to the other Gospels. You see, Mark, he likes to tell stories with interruptions in them, just like he does here. He could have simply told us about the teachers of the law and what they were trying to do, and then along came Judas and his betrayal as one account, and then he could have told us of the anointing as a separate account. But Mark, he uses this interrupting technique to force his readers to compare the woman who anoints Jesus with the leaders who scheme to kill him and Judas who betrays him. And by doing this, Mark shows this woman's pure devotion in sharp contrast to the hostility and treachery of the priests and their accomplice, Judas. She is an outstanding model for us of the kind of worshipers that we desire to be here in our community. But before we take a look at her, let us take a look at the two others that Mark contrasts her with and their attitudes and actions towards Jesus. First, are the chief priests and teachers of the law who are conspiring against Christ, and they've been doing this for a long time. They were jealous of his popularity, his authoritative teaching, and also how Jesus undermined their rule by pointing out their corruption. Their scheming against Jesus is, is fueled by their insecurity and their love for power, and so they just want to shut Jesus up for good. Judas's betrayal, on the other hand, I think it's a little more complicated. In John's gospel, it tells us that Judas was a thief. As the group's money keeper, he regularly helped himself to the, to the disciples' common purse. But I think his betrayal runs deeper than just greed. Perhaps Judas had high hopes of what being a part of Jesus's entourage would mean for him. Earlier in Mark chapter 11, at the triumphal entry, he's probably thinking, this is it. Here's the moment. Jesus has been going on for the last three years about how he's about to usher in God's kingdom. And as one of the 12 disciples, Judas would have been in a prime position uh, for, he would have been in line for a prime position in that kingdom. So I can imagine that along the way, Judas has suffered some significant disappointments and he has become disillusioned. And perhaps when the chief priests and the Pharisees gave the order that if anyone found out where Jesus was, they should report it so that he could be arrested, as it says in John 11, that maybe Judas concluded following Christ was no longer to his benefit, and perhaps that he could get more out of betraying Jesus than following Jesus. You know, there are similar responses to Christ today. Like the religious rulers who see Jesus as nothing but a troublemaker and want to do, way, do away with him quietly, there are people and powers and institutions 
in our world that also prefer a silent or quiet Jesus as well. You see, a silent Jesus cannot present a challenge to our structures and our kingdoms, whether those are religious kingdoms or political ones or financial ones. And a censored Jesus doesn't call us out on our wrongs or require us to make any changes. And like Judas, some of those who follow Jesus can also suffer disappointment and become disillusioned. And when it appears that following him is no longer beneficial and it's more advantageous to sell him out, they can quickly abandon Jesus too. But unlike the religious leaders, or Judas, this unnamed woman in this account is not looking to see what Jesus can do for her. Rather, she is seeking to honor him. And her authentic worship is worth way more than she will ever know. It's worth breaking down what she has done so that we can see the full impact of her actions and learn from them as well. First of all, we see that her worship it was risky. This woman, she boldly enters into the dining room. She cracks open this jar and she pours the whole contents over Jesus' head. Can you imagine the inner critic that she would have to overcome in order to do this? I can just imagine her thinking, can I really do this? Should I really do this? Well, what if Jesus doesn't like Nard, right? What if he has, you know, sensitivity to strong fragrances? What will other people think? Now, I know that I'm only speculating, but I think each of us can attest that when it comes to our displays of worship, that inner critic can be more difficult to overcome than some of the outside ones. But she also risks the criticism of those outsiders. See, in the culture at that time, there would have only been men eating in that dining room. And likely the women, they would have been serving the men the meal and then eating theirs in a separate room. And so she overcomes this huge cultural and social barrier based on gender. It says a couple of verses down that those present were indignant with what she had done and rebuked her harshly. And I wondered when I read this, would they have felt the same freedom to rebuke had it been one of the men who had performed this act? Nevertheless, what she does takes great courage and it demonstrates how authentic worship often has an element of risk to it and may offend other people. But she is focused on loving Jesus, not on what others think, and it's her love for him that helps her to overcome these barriers. Next, we see that her worship is costly, or it's sacrificial. Verse 5 says that this ointment could have been sold for more than a year's wages. Actually, in the Greek, it says that it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii. Now, to give us some context for how much 300 denarii is, way back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus, he's teaching, and there's a crowd of over 5,000 people there, and he tells his disciples that they should go buy food for them to eat. 
And the disciples are shocked and they exclaim, teacher, it would cost us about 200 denarii in order to give this crowd of over 5,000 enough bread to eat. 200 denarii can feed 5,000 people bread. This perfume costs 300 denarii. It is very expensive. However, the cost this woman paid by pouring it out in worship was not only financial. You see, this alabaster jar of nard was likely this family heirloom passed down from one generation to the next, from mother to daughter. And so it has deep sentimental value. And we know that monetary value is not the only way we determine something's worth anyways. Remember the story, it's found in Mark 12, where Jesus, he's sitting in the temple and he's watching all these people put their gifts into the temple treasury and he sees some very wealthy people put in some large sums of money, but it's this widow who catches his attention who puts in two copper coins, only worth a few cents. The, this is the one whom Jesus praises and declares has put more into the treasury than all of the others. Again, it's not the price tag that you can put on something that determines its worth, especially when it comes to our worship. And so this woman's gift in Mark 14 was costly because of its value, but also because it was a cherished family heirloom. And as it turned out, it's worth even more than all of that, more than she would ever know because of her willingness to offer it to Christ in worship. So far we've seen how her worship took risks, how it was sacrificial, but we should also note that it was very generous. More than generous, it was lavish. She wasn't stingy or even prudent. Rather than just, you know, crack it open and just dab Jesus with a little bit of the fragrance as one might do in a traditional anointing, enabling her to save most of it, she instead pours it all out on him. And I have to say, friends, this one challenges me. Growing up as a child of refugees in a church that was primarily made up of refugees, it was unofficially taught to me that frugalness was next to godliness. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it didn't take me long to meet other Christians who also grew up with the gospel of thrifty in mind either. But sometimes... You know, sometimes we can use this kind of thinking as a bit of a smokescreen for being stingy. You know, years ago, a pastor whom I worked with, he was retiring, and those who were in charge of recognizing his many years of service to the church community, they were discussing plans for his farewell, and I was a part of this meeting, and I was shocked when the conversation quickly developed into a discussion about what the bare minimum we could do in order to get away with fulfilling our obligation was. This was in sharp contrast to an experience that Andrea and I had just had coming from the first church I worked as a youth pastor. For only five years, 
where that church went out of its way to celebrate and bless the time that we ministered together with a huge potluck party. I'm a huge fan of potlucks, by the way. But you see, the big difference between those who organized these two farewells, it was not in what they spent. It was rather in their attitudes. One looked to bless and honor, and the other sought only to fulfill an obligation and to just get their duty over with. But the woman in this account, she shows us that generous worship, it not only blesses the one who receives it, but it blesses the entire community. Look how you and I continue to benefit from her lavish generosity today. We are learning from her example. On the other hand, those who worship with tight fists and only do what is required out of obligation not only rob God of what he deserves, but they also rob themselves and the community of joy. Authentic worship is risky, it's sacrificial and generous, and it is also timely. Her worship was timely because Jesus is about to die, and so the opportunity to minister to him, it won't last long. He commends her timing in verse 7, saying, The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying to forget the poor. Jesus loves the poor, and caring for the poor is an essential part of following him. He is also not comparing himself to the poor, saying he deserves it and they don't. Rather, what Jesus is pointing out is the timing. You can always help the poor because you will always have the poor. But you will not always have Jesus around. You'll not always have me around, he's saying. And so your opportunities to bless me are dwindling, is what he is saying. At this moment, facing the crucifixion, Jesus is the poorest of the poor. So now is the time to give to him. But after his death and resurrection, then his disciples can give to all the other poor. And timing, it is often far more important than what we often think. It's the reason why we thank someone after a meal so soon after eating it rather than just months down the road, right? Because we understand there is a window of opportunity that we can miss out on when it comes to showing our thanks. You know, I personally missed out on one of these opportunities many years ago. As most of you know, in my 20s, uh, I had cancer, and I was, I was, I was uh, coming to the end of my treatments for cancer. I had this dream. It was this idea to throw this great big party as a way of, an in, of intentionally thanking God for healing me and inviting all of our friends and family and those who walked alongside of us. But I put it off. And eventually, things kind of return to normal. And I felt like I missed my window to do it. Now, I understand that God knows how thankful I am for healing me, and he loves me, and his love is, it's not based on any grand gestures that we perform for him. 
But I regret that I didn't throw that gratitude party back then at that time because I just wanted to show how thankful I was. Yes, I thank him many, many times since. But when it comes to worship, timing is important. And sometimes we can miss out on our opportunities. And if this woman in Mark did not act when she had, then it also would have been too late. You see, Jesus' body would not have been anointed for burial because as, con as a convicted criminal, he wouldn't have been afforded those rights. And by the time the other women uh, in the Gospels show up at the tomb to do it, it's too late. He's already been resurrected from the dead. Now, some people would argue with me, Dave, this woman didn't know Jesus was going to die in the next few days. She didn't know how to get the timing right. She didn't know when the right time was exactly. I totally agree. So then the right time is right now. And that leads me to the final characteristic of this authentic worship. Is that, and we see it in her actions, they are spirit-led. Her actions are spirit-led. Now, I imagine she had not been planning on this, this dousing of Jesus for weeks or even days. I think that this was an idea given to her by the Holy Spirit perhaps that morning in her prayer time or maybe even while she was helping serve the meal. And in that moment, she was faithful to obey. And we can wrestle with so many questions and doubts, but when it comes down to it, we also need to trust the Spirit of God when he prompts us through our thoughts and our dreams, through the encouragement of other people, and even through our feelings. And we sometimes just need to get out of our own way and allow God's Spirit to lead us. And this woman shows us the characteristics of what authentic worship looks like, but this story also shows us how other people may respond when they are faced with our authentic worship. In verses 4 to 5, it says, Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. You know, it always happens that when people decide to worship Jesus without inhibitions, that other people look on and they find the spectacle embarrassing or even distasteful. But here's the thing. Not everybody is called to pour out expensive perfume on Jesus. Not everybody is, you know, needs to raise their hands in worship or even dance or shout out to the Lord praises. However, if someone is, the rest of us should respect it and refrain from criticizing. We should respect and refrain from criticizing. Theologian N.T. Wright says, The grumbles of the bystanders sound a lot like the embarrassed rationalizations of people who have their own emotions well covered up and don't like seeing other people's emotions on display. You see, the grumblers in this story are emotionally stunted and immature. Not only 
do they criticize her gift. But think about how dishonoring it is to Jesus when they object to the woman's gift in his presence. This should cause you and I to think twice before criticizing other people's displays of worship for fear not only that we discourage them, but that we also dishonor Jesus. And then when we're tempted to criticize them, we just need to remember the one command that Jesus gives in this entire passage. He says, leave her alone. It's one thing for us to contemplate if we should participate in worship the same way as other people. It's also okay for us to discuss biblically appropriate ways that we honor God with our bodies and voices and possessions. But when discussion and thoughtfulness turn into gossip and criticism of another person's worship, Jesus advises us as well, leave them alone. I love how Jesus not only defends this woman and her actions, but he goes on to take her worship and make more of it than she could have ever imagined. First, he praises it and calls it a beautiful thing. He could have said anything else. He could have said, that's nice, or that was really thoughtful, but he chooses beautiful. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want Jesus to say about my worship of him, that it is a beautiful thing. Then he contextualizes her worship by situating it within the grand scope of time and God's kingdom when he says, the poor you'll always have, you can always help them, but you, you won't always have me. You won't always have this time. So Jesus praises her timing and that she didn't delay. She did it at just the right time. And then he reframes her worship by saying that this act was preparing him for his burial. She didn't know that. But he takes what she has done and he elevates it. She did so much more than she knew. And finally, he blesses her for her worship. Not only does he lift her up in front of the critics right there and then, but he says that her act of worship will be memorialized in the gospel, told for generations throughout the world. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. Despite the prominence of Jesus' death and resurrection, this little dinner party at some obscure outpost in the middle of Israel, and she is remembered for what she has done. That's incredible. Her authentic worship is worth far more than she knew. And so is yours. And so is mine. You know, we're never told uh, what prompted this woman to do what she does. We're not even told who she is. Mark likes to keep it a secret because he wants the focus to be on the worship of Jesus and not the worshiper. And she's fine by that as well because that was her intention all along. She is thinking of Jesus, not of herself. But though Mark doesn't share her identity, the Gospel of John also shares this story. And in John 12, we're told that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And they're Jesus' good friends. And I think Mary does what she does because she's so grateful. She's grateful to Jesus for raising her brother from the dead. She's grateful to Jesus for his friendship and for his forgiveness. 
Grateful because he defended her on another occasion when she broke through the gender barrier to listen to Jesus rather than staying in the place society told her that she was to observe. And I think she's grateful because she believes that he is the Messiah. He is the one who will rescue her from her sins and from the evil structures and powers that continue to try and hold her back and hold her captive in this broken world. And so she worships him. And her worship is risky and costly. It is generous and timely and it is spirit-led. And all of these characteristics of authentic worship that we see in hers, they won't always feature every single time that you and I worship God. But it should not be that they never make an appearance. And each of those characteristics, they need to be a part of our worship with some consistency. Like Mary, you and I also have plenty to be grateful to Jesus for as well. Grateful for his friendship because he is also our defender from those who would accuse us. Grateful because he is our Messiah. He is the one who rescues us from our sins and from the evil structures and powers that continue to try to hold us captive in this broken world. Jesus is more than worthy of our worship and our authentic worship is worth way more than we know. As a longtime follower of Jesus myself, one of the things that I know that I need to be aware of when it comes to my worship is my attitude. I know that I need to be on guard against just going through the motions or offering Jesus worship that doesn't challenge me or take me out of my comfort zone. Worship should often feel a little risky. It should feel sacrificial. I love this scene found in 2 Samuel 24, where King David, he wants to offer God a sacrifice. And this farmer comes along and he offers to give King David the wood for the altar, the land, even the animal, all for free. But David refuses and he says, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I will not give worship to the Lord that costs me nothing. In the same way, our worship should cost us something. Perhaps the cost is what other people think of us. Or maybe like this woman in this story, it costs us some courage in order to cross some outwardly imposed boundaries in order to worship God. Maybe the hurdle that we need to get over in order to worship him authentically are those internal limits that we have set for ourselves, like some embarrassment. I know for myself, the first time I raised my hands in worship, the biggest obstacle I had to overcome were my own insecurities. And sometimes it's not so much others who impede our worship. Often we, we get in our own way and we need to work hard to get over ourselves, over our self-constraints, and the fear we have of what others might think or say. And it's really hard to do that. But that's worship. And whoever told us that worship was supposed to be easy anyways. But like Mary, I want to be willing to take risks when it comes to my worship. 
rather than listening to that voice in my head that tells me, you don't have to do it. You don't have to pay the price or take the risk. And I also want to get over the fear of what other people might say or think. And in order to do that, we need to focus on the object of our affections. And that's Jesus. And trust that just like he defended and welcomed her worship, he will do the same for us. In closing, I want to be clear that worship is not limited to just singing in church or even sacrificing money or material goods like this woman did with her costly perfume. There are so many ways that you and I can worship Christ, whether it's being generous with our time, our talents, and our expertise, or maybe it's having to make some sacrifices, sacrificing a dream or our rights and privileges in order to follow Christ. There are so many ways that we can creatively worship him authentically. And so I think there's an opportunity before each of us today and this week to consider how are we going to show Jesus our gratitude? There's an opportunity for us to be open and curious to the Spirit's leading and his timing and to follow him obediently and to worship authentically. You know, just a couple of examples that I've noticed of authentic worship in our community recently. One was a home group who, in our congregation, that had spent time helping newcomers to Canada to get settled and befriend them when the opportunity just arose. I think that's authentically worshiping Christ. Another was a couple uh, that I heard last week who went and visited another uh, friend of ours in our church who is sick and brought them home baking. And I think that was authentically worshiping Christ by serving another. Now these may not seem all that impressive, but just as Jesus called this woman's anointing beautiful, and then he took it and he transformed it into something greater than she ever imagined, I believe that Jesus sees our authentic acts of worship. And they are beautiful to him as well. And he makes more of them than any of us could. Jesus, I give you thanks and praise that this story is recorded in scriptures. And I thank you just for the, the amazing example that this woman is. And how she overcame all of those things to worship you. Because you are so worthy. And we recognize God that you are worthy of all of our praise. I pray for each of us that you would help us to overcome the obstacles in our lives that impede us from worshiping you, that you would help us to be courageous and that you would give us, uh, yeah, your strength and your assistance to help us in all the ways in our lives that we need that. Lord, I just thank you that you are so patient and kind with us and just pray that you would uh, reveal to us by your Holy Spirit ways in which that we could bless you and build your kingdom here now uh, as a way of thanking you for all that you've done and all that you will do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.